This is the Baywatch Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we listen to what Paul says about walking in righteousness. Yes, verse by verse, through the old letter. Walking verse by verse in righteousness through Romans. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here we go. Paul's been working hard to make the case that we are not justified because of our own righteousness, but by our faith. That faith, what's, good, what's another good word for faith, Brent, that we talk about from Hebrew perspective? Trust. Trust. That faith, from a Jewish perspective, understands trust. So we have been using the phrase, trusting in the promises of God, quite a bit through Galatians and now Romans. We've been using the phrase, trusting in the promises of God. Kind of sounds like another phrase we used to use all the time. Trust the story. Trust the story. That'll probably, that'll probably show up here in a little bit. Trusting in the promises of God sounds like the title of a book. Yeah, or a, or a great old hymn. Oh. But, I mean, that's more like standing on the promises. Oh, uh, okay. I wouldn't know I'll anything about that. I'll refrain from singing at this, at this moment. But what promises? When we say trusting the promises of God, what promises do we mean specifically? For some, they may not like the phrase because they think that faith should be a reference to some creedal affirmation of the personhood and deity of Jesus. And while I'm not, I don't want to sit here and take away from the significance of that truth at all, the, the, the personhood or the deity of Christ. That's not my point here, uh, not even for a moment. But it is important to see that good biblical exegesis doesn't let that understanding hold much water for very long here. There's a great debate over the use of a phrase that shows up in the New Testament quite a bit, Brent. The phrase is pistis Christu, pistis Christu in the Greek, uh, and how it should be translated. Pistis Christu. I just have to keep saying that so we get it. Modern scholarship learn, leans towards saying this phrase in the New Testament should always be translated faith of Christ and not faith in Christ, which is how we are used to hearing it. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Pistis Christu. Faith in Christ. But modern scholarship saying, wait a minute, it, can't, it shouldn't be faith in Christ. Pistis Christu actually is really difficult to know how we ought to render it. It's just as possible to render it faith of Christ. We've just always kind of flippantly done faith in Christ for obvious reasons. Historically speaking, the phrase faith in Christ will only make sense if the New Testament letters are penned much later than we're typically comfortable with. And this doesn't even begin to touch the etymological problems of translating the phrase in and not of. Like, like think about it, Brent. What does faith in Christ mean? Like faith in Christ. Like our like like Christ is the embodiment of our faith. Okay. Is that is that how you've heard that phrase well, before? I don't know. I'm just trying to think about how to I'm not really sure the best way to describe it. But like you're uh you, you like you trust Christ to do something for you kind of. Okay. Yeah. Is oh, that, okay. Is that... Yeah, faith in Christ. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see that. The uh whereas the faith of Christ is like whatever what other whatever faith Christ has. Ooh, yes, that's what you. I would have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh your very first reference faith in Christ being my my faith exists in Christ doesn't work in this Greek phrase. Your second uh, you know, I've never actually read a paper that takes your second idea. I'm sure that idea is out there, but I've read a lot of more modern scholarship papers on on the other rendering faith of Christ. And I think you articulated it quite well. So more relevant to our conversation is that this understanding of faith in Christ, that typical, what I think we're more used to, it doesn't work in Paul's line of reasoning. Paul has now said in two different letters that Abraham had an understanding of the gospel, quote unquote, and that his faith was the reason for God's justification. 
obviously, Abraham cannot demonstrate a faith in Christ, in, at least in the creedal sense. There is no Christ. Uh, there's no Christ he can affirm. There's no creedal. <laughs> there is no Jesus. Like the, he can't have faith in Christ in that creedal sense. He can demonstrate the faith of Christ. So we return to our original question. What promises did Abraham and Jesus trust in? What promises are we supposed to trust in? You and me, Brent, what are we supposed to trust in? There will be many ways to articulate it. Before our conversation, we have used the phrase, you said it earlier, trust the story. It's a reference back to the story of creation and how God truly feels about humanity. It's a story reminding us that God sees us with love and compassion. It's a story where God affirms our acceptance and our value. Simply put, God loves us. Not only this, but God said that we, along with all of creation, are a part of a good creation. For many of us, having grown up in a Christian worldview that emphasizes our brokenness, our sinfulness, our depravity, all truth, by the way, all those things are true about us. They're just not the essential truth that we've made them out to be, at least not as God told us, not as we've looked at in the podcast, Bema Podcast, session one. This may come uh, to be a hard pill to swallow for a lot of us. I'm not trying to argue that man isn't sinful or that I believe in some twisted version of Pelagian heresy. We'll talk about Pelagius later. Uh, Humanity is obviously broken, full of potential uh, for incredible evil and has a tendency for sinful behavior. We all know it to be true of ourselves. More on that here in Romans chapter 7. And we all know it's true of others. What I'm saying is that from the opening chapters of Torah, God has pleaded with humanity not to believe that this is the essential truth about who they are. And at no point throughout scripture did God give us a memo to think otherwise. Sin is serious. Sin is destructive. Sin is incongruent with the world that God desires and the kingdom he invites us to be a part of. There is an urgency about sin in my heart and in yours, Brent, and in the heart of all of our listeners. And how we ought to turn from it and repent and turn from our original design. But there is an original design about us as true today as it ever was. We wrestle with the parts of us that war against each other. But the most inherent truth about who we are is not our depravity, but the truth that we bear the image of God. That is more true. Our image of God in this, Brent, is more true than our depravity. Most will point to the book of Romans to make a case that we were all sinful and doomed. The good news is that we are engaged in a verse-by-verse journey through this book of Romans as we speak right now. And we'll have an opportunity to see if we think that's really what the letter is trying to communicate. Maybe this idea is too much. Maybe you're not willing to accept this. And that's fine. But we must wrestle with the most fundamental truths that shape our understanding of God and humanity. If we are unconvinced, we should be unconvinced because of a serious look at the scriptures through sound biblical interpretation and historical context. If so, we will emerge from this journey with an even better understanding of our convictions. And if we consider these questions and find that things seem to have been constructed uh, or construed even by a few centuries of bad Christian dogma, we may have some work we want to do. So it sounds like it's time to keep moving. That was a lot of introduction, Brent Billings. A lot of me waxing eloquent there. It's what the listeners crave. It's what they crave, but no no more of that. We're off to deal with a verse that has never made much sense unless you wrestle with what I just got done <laughs> rambling about. So after making the argument that our justification does not come from our ability to be righteous, but by trusting in the promises of God, Paul makes this statement. Go ahead and read me the next couple of verses of Romans, Brent. Okay, Romans, uh, where are we at? Five or six. 
You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul references the powerlessness that he so eloquently described in the first three chapters. Remember those first three chapters in an episode we called The Blended Family. Um, there was this power. We all fall short of this standard. And so talking about this, he then says that somebody wouldn't die for a righteous man, although for a good man, somebody might dare to die. Wait. Possibly one of the most confusing verses exactly. for me. Exactly. And forever. we read it like all the time. And we're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> Nobody would die for a righteous man, though for a good man somebody might possibly dare to die. Like, what in the world is going on here? In our typical understanding of man's depravity and ultimate sinful condition, that verse makes no sense without an awful lot of explanatory gymnastics. However, if we hold on to our previous point in view, everything comes in line and works with Paul's reasoning. Paul has been saying that your righteousness does you very little good when it comes to justification. He then says that a person won't lay down their life for another because they are righteous. Nobody would do that. A person is willing to lay down their life for another because that person's life is good. It's worth being preserved and it's worth dying for. We all inherently know this to be true. If you and I were willing to lay down our life for one another, it would not be because that person is righteous. It would be because life is worth saving. Brent, if your life were in danger and I were to lay down my life for yours, it wouldn't be because I sit back and I go, well, Brent's a righteous man, following the rules and doing everything he ought to. Well, that's why I'll save it. No, it's because your life is worth saving to begin with. And do all the Greek etymological study you want surrounding the words used in this verse, it's only going to help make this case. The term good here refers to the inherent nature of a thing. Look it up in any lexicon you want. Righteous? Well, not so much. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Nobody's going to lay down their life for anybody because they're righteous, but they will lay down their life because life is good. For a good person, somebody might possibly dare to die. We know this to be true of our own lives. We just don't believe it to be true about God. Brothers and sisters, welcome to the gospel of justification by trusting in the promises of God. So right after this statement... Christ dying for good men, he goes on to employ another rabbinical teaching tool that Jesus himself used more than once. The tool is called Calvachomer, and we have talked about it before. It refers to the principle of lesser and greater. A rabbi will sometimes use this tool to make his point through juxtaposition. The idea is to point out that a principle is universally true by showing it's true in the simplest of circumstances. The teacher then proclaims that if such a truth is true in that situation, how much more, and those are your key words with the Kalvachomer, how much more, they're usually used blatantly, sometimes they're not used, but the principle is there. But when you see the words, how much more, you know you're dealing with a rabbinical Kalvachomer. How much more will be true in other situations? If it's true in that situation, how much more would it be true in others? A great example of this is in Jesus' teaching uh, about the, the persistent widow found in Luke 18. She bugs the corrupt judge long enough that he gives in to her demand. Jesus is not saying that the judge allegorically represents God. Jesus is employing a calvachomer. He's saying that if a corrupt judge would give in to her persistent requests, how much more would God who loves and cares for his children? Another example might be Luke 11, uh, 11 through 13. 
as well as many other teachings of Jesus, if anybody wants to look those up. It's the phrase, how much more, that is translated from the uh, th- that this idea of calvachomer uh, is attached to. While Romans is written in Greek, the rabbinical teaching tool would be so well known by his, Judea- his Jewish audience, to whom he's obviously speaking here, he's been speaking and making very Jewish conversation with the Jews of Romans as his main audience. We'll, we'll actually see that kind of proven a little bit later here in a couple chapters. Uh so since he's, since he's talking to this Jewish audience, uh, they're going to know this tool and realize what he's trying to do. Watch Paul employ the tool throughout the fifth chapter of Romans. So Brent, go ahead and read us this nice little chunk here. I may or may not interrupt you every two sentences. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Okay, there you go. How much more? There's a callback on right off the bat. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him. Okay, keep going. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, clearly employing this rabbinical tool of Kalvachomer. How much more? If this is true, how much more is this true? And if this is true, how much more is this true? This is totally true. If this is so, then this is so. That whole idea. Go ahead and keep reading. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. All right, now, really good book to read here. I'm going to... I'm going to link a book here in our show notes, uh, The Evolution of Adam by Pete, by Pete Enns, Peter Enns. Um, great book to read on, it has a little bit of Genesis, but the book is really meant to focus on Romans 5. Because a large question surrounding Romans 5 is Romans 5 talking about a literal person, Adam, or is Romans talking about Adam as a, as a type? As a as a representative, as a greater principle, as a greater tool, I think we're going to find if we see Romans five in context. We we have been taught to read these verses through the lens of our theology. We've been taught how to read Romans five through the lens of Augustine, uh, or Augustine, as some people like to say. But a, you know, fourth, fifth century theologians more than we have been taught to just read it through a Jewish lens and a Jewish perspective at its appropriate point in history. So. We read these things, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, we immediately read that through typical Christian, Augustinian, Constantinian, creedal Christianity. Is that what Paul is doing here from a Jewish perspective and a Jewish mindset? I'm arguing, no, he's not. He's using Adam as a representative, as a, as a type of a much bigger issue, which is going to become clear. And that last verse you read there, Brent, um, can you read that last, even just the last half of the verse that you read there? As did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Who is a pattern of the one to come. Now, reference to Jesus, but I think that phrase makes it clear. Paul is using Adam. He's going to employ a calvachomer here. Spoiler alert. There's going to be a calvachomer. He's using Adam as a, as a representative. So go ahead and keep reading, Brent. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? There's your Kalvachomer. 
The gift is not like the trespass. What's the trespass, Brent? The sin. Yeah, just sin in general. Sin, Adam. Sin that was in the world even before there was a law to break. Sin that just is sin. And sin is a big deal. We just started our whole discussion with the biggest, the big dealness of sin. And yet, how much more is the gift? The gift is not like the trespass. How much more is it better? How much more better is the gift than the trespass? Because the gift is grace through Jesus, faith, trust, the promise of God. The trespass is the sin, the destruction, the death. How much greater is the life? How much greater is the grace? Go ahead and keep reading. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Right. Now, if we don't read this through the lens of Augustinian theology, if all we do is just let this be for a moment and we hear what Paul's saying, if sin was able to come through the story of Adam, if sin has that much power over us to haunt us, to to curse us, to destroy our walks, if sin has that much power, this death that came through one man— How much more, how much greater is the gift, the grace, the freedom that came through Jesus? Paul's trying to say, your sin's a big deal, but it ain't got nothing on what Jesus did. I love this phrase, God's abundant provision of grace. Yes, absolutely. Go ahead and keep reading. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man of the one man the many will be made righteous. All right, so one act, one man. And one act, one man. Through one act and one man comes death, the curse, destruction. And through one act of one man comes life and liberty and freedom and salvation. And Paul says, both one acts, both of them coming through one man, and yet how much better is life than death? How much better is goodness, truth than than falsehood? How much better is light than darkness? I just love that. Keep reading. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God gave the law in part so that, yes, we would understand even more about our sin. But the more we understood about our sin, the more we understood about grace. So it was never that sin, like I was taught in Bible college that God gave the law so we would realize how hopeless and how sinful we were. And then God sent Jesus to like, hooray, fix it not what Paul's saying here. Like like Paul's saying, God sent the loss that we would understand our sin more, but the more we understood about sin, the more we also saw and experienced and had God's love. So God's love always increased at a greater rate than our knowledge of sin, our awareness of sin did. And I feel like this might be a good spot to remind listeners what eternal life is talking about. It's not this oh, sure. quantitative sense, but the qualitative sense of life. Absolutely. He wanted to bring... Uh, like real life now. I think I actually have some notes coming up here on that. Brent, I'm actually super glad you pointed that out. Uh, Let me just keep reading and see if we find it. 
Honestly, I would recommend reading uh, that whole section through a few times, a couple of times to identify and notice the employment of the Calvachomer, maybe a couple more times to appreciate the point that Paul is trying to make. I have often taught this passage to my students and referenced it as the greatest Calvachomer of all time. The greatest Calvachomer. Paul's point is that sin has nothing on grace. You think sin is a big deal? Grace is a bigger deal. You think Adam screwed up the world? How much more did Jesus put it back together? You think death can spread through our mistakes? Life can spread through grace and forgiveness exponentially. A trespass can't hold a candle to the gift. The failure of Adam is knocked out by the sacrifice of Jesus the moment the bell rings. It's not even a fair fight. How much more? How much more? You can point out sin all day long, but grace outdoes it. So the more sin you point out, the bigger grace gets, because grace is greater than sin. This might make some of us nervous, because we might think this leads to a no accountability, free for all faith, kind of like we talked about in Galatians. But that's not where. where but that that idea is exactly where Paul sets his sights next. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay, so Paul takes this fallacious line of thinking, this fallacy of thought, and shows it to be flawed. This amazing grace cannot be construed as a license to sin. For the very awakening to the grace was also a death to the kind of worldview that leads us to sin in the first place. We, we went all the way back to Genesis in session one, Brent, and we said we sin because we're afraid. We're, we sin because of fear. We sin because of insecurity. We sin because we're not enough. We think there is not enough, and so we take it from other people. We take it from wherever, and that's where sin comes from. But if I understand how big God's love is, if I understand how big God's grace is, if I understand the greatest Calvachomer, well, I'm going to die to that way of thinking. So once we truly come to grasp and embrace this gospel of acceptance, we die to that former way of thought, acting out of fear, acting out of preservation of self, acting out of our unharnessed desires. All those things are replaced with a spirit of peace and of life and a life of self-sacrifice. We die to that old way of thinking. Paul then uses baptism as his pitcher and his teaching point. Uh, and to understand, by the way, little another plug for another book here, to understand why Paul might be using baptism at this point in his argument, I would highly recommend a book that's actually about Hebrews, uh, Elementary Principles, a book by Thomas Lancaster. If you're like, wait a minute, I recognize that name. That's because it was the name of the guy who wrote what book, Brent? Galatians. The Galatians book. So he wrote another book. I don't think it was as good, but it was excellent. Um, it, was, uh, it was actually about a, a small passage in the book of Hebrews, but I feel like um, he did a, he did a great job talking about baptism and um, the, what we found in the Didache, like the Didache, um, we should link a Wikipedia article to the Didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, Didache, I actually say Didache. The Didache is a, um, a, kind of like an, a, a manual of early church teachings. It's not supposed to be in your Bible. It's not inspired. It's not canonized. It's just this ancient record of what is the early church supposed to do? Well, in the Didache, it has instructions for baptism. And baptism was largely the point of when people came to the saving knowledge of the saving <laughs> When they came to salvation in Jesus, they marked it with baptism. And what was also taking place at that baptism was a forsaking 
a forsaking. It was a life change. It was a life transformation. And we always talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but there was also a forsaking of that old way, that old mentality. And so, and you see that outlined in the Didache. The Didache talks about it's important to teach new converts that what they're doing is they're forsaking an old Greco-Roman pagan idolatry. And they have to know that when they take the waters of baptism, that's what they're doing. It's a really interesting read especially for those of us that are coming from like a Stone Campbell restoration movement, Church of Christ movement type background. Um, I mean, we have our passionate beliefs about baptism. So hold on to those, hang on to those, read books, understand it even more, understand it even better. I'm not arguing against any of those understandings at all, but beautiful to understand how baptism was seen historically. Okay. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin." Paul says that this baptism we do, this baptism we undergo, is a physical picture, among other things. And it teaches us the transformation, uh, it teaches us about the transformation taking place. Just as Jesus died, was buried, and then brought back to life, so there is a part of us that has been put to death, so that the truest part of us might live on. Baptism is this watery grave, an image of burial and resurrection, teaching us about this new life. Keep reading, Brent. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. We left our old self in the watery grave. It died a death and can be put to rest. We, however, live on. The part of us that lives on is the part of us being shaped into the image of Christ. And you might notice all the language of joining and with him and united in all these passages. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is where it really starts to sound like we're reading the the culmination of one single narrative. Like we've always talked in Bema about how the Bible is one single narrative, or at least can be seen that way. This exhortation from Paul is nothing new at all. It takes us all the way back to the beginning of the story, where we met Adam and Eve in the middle of the garden. We are told about their temptations, their desires, and their invitation to demonstrate that they are made in the image of God. They're invited to know when to say enough. I think that was Bema episode number two or three or something like that. And so are we. Paul makes sure that we know that our invitation has not changed since the dawn of time. The language is incredibly similar to the language of Genesis. We are invited to trust the story to master our desires, to demonstrate self-control. I love that we're coming around to so much session one stuff here in Romans. So juicy. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, 
or to obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So finally, Paul circles back to the question at hand. If grace is this good, should we just continue in our sin? Absolutely not. The truth is we will offer ourselves to one of two realities. We can live out our lives in service to fear, or we can live out our lives in the service of trust, faith, and love. But a life of bland neutrality is not going to be an option available to any of us. This gospel has come to rescue us, to set us free from a life of servitude to fear and self-preservation. It has come to set us free to zedekah, zedekah, we've talked about that before in session two, to righteousness, generosity, and self-sacrifice. And for now, I think that's an okay place to stop, Mr. Brent. And this is kind of that same idea that we're talking about at the end of the last chapter with the eternal life. The, Absolutely. The, you know, you set aside the, the death and sin. Yep. And you bring in this eternal life, this quality of, of life that... To take part in a present, a present day experience. We're not setting something apart so that someday later we can go somewhere else. We're setting something apart so that we can walk in this life now. We can engage it now. We can experience it now. We can bring it to others now. It's a very now kind of reality. Eternal life starts now. Starts now. Life before death, not just life after death. All right. We have a lot more Romans to get to. So we sure do. We will leave it at that for this episode, and we will be back uh, soon. You can go to uh if you have any questions about past material. We're not done with Romans yet, so hold your Romans questions. Uh, but you can get a hold of us there. Uh, we love to hear from you. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.